The year was 1862. It was wartime. But despite the raging Civil War, the new dome was still under construction on the US Capitol building. And the last piece was the great Statue of Freedom for the top. Now it had been shipped over from Italy in five sections and temporarily plastered together so that it could be on display while the dome was still being finished. But now there was a problem because no one knew how to get it back apart again for the final casting. <laughs> the seams were hidden by the plaster and the Italian sculptor who had plastered it together refused to tell where the seams were unless his pay was increased. <laughs> but one skilled laborer saved the day. He attached a pulley to the top of the statue and exerted just enough upward pull until the seams began to show, cracking lightly through the plaster. And so the casting could proceed. And the Statue of Freedom stands majestically atop the Capitol building to this day. Now that skilled laborer's name was Philip Reed. And he was a black man. And he was a slave. Rather, he was one of many, many enslaved people who provided the labor for the, for the Capitol building, most of whose names, of course, we don't know. And the fact that the Capitol building was built in large part by enslaved laborers can seem ironic, this symbol of liberty, of freedom, of justice. Even the Statue of Freedom on the top, that can seem ironic but it's a symbol of the deep irony built into the history of this country, whose founding documents speak of liberty and justice and freedom, while at the same time enshrining into law the idea that one person could own another. It was 400 years and about two weeks ago that the first European ship, the White Lion, arrived in Virginia carrying kidnapped African people to be sold into slavery. It was about August 20th, 1619. You may have seen that date in the New York Times' special feature, the 1619 Project, which aims to take that event and put it back where it belongs, close to the center of our telling of American history. And it does belong there. We might sometimes wish that the story of this country could be told with slavery and racism as a kind of sidebar or kind of asterisk, an unfortunate chapter, a diversion from the true story. But the reality is that slavery existed here for over 200 years, for a longer period of time even now than the period of time since it ended. And even after it legally ended, its poisonous legacy continued and continues in many ways. And the fact is that just as slavery was a central part of the story of the building of the Capitol building, so slavery is a central part of our national story. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to his friend Philemon. And it was a personal letter, but a letter 
destined to be read in public, and so a personal letter with a kind of public twist. It was meant, in fact, to be read before the whole church that met in Philemon's house, the church of which he was the patron and host. And this letter was about slavery. Now, slavery in the Roman Empire was different in some ways than American slavery. It wasn't based on race or ethnicity. It was easier in some ways for ancient Roman slaves to gain education and some degree of status, and even to buy their freedom than it would be hundreds of years later here. But the heart of the system was the same. The idea taken for granted that one human being could indeed be another person's property. And this idea was absolutely part of the fabric of ancient Rome. And so the letter that Paul writes is radical. There was a slave named Onesimus who had escaped from Philemon's house. And somehow he made his way to Paul, where he became a Christian. Now, an escaped slave ordinarily would face severe punishment and certainly could even face death. But Paul writes to Philemon that he should take Onesimus back, and not only take him back, but without punishment. And not only without punishment, but as Paul puts it, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. Scholars still debate whether Paul is actually telling Philemon to give Onesimus his emancipation or to treat him as a brother in some kind of more spiritual sense. To me, the reading of the letter is pretty clear. To me, when Paul writes no longer as a slave, that is probably what he means. And so Paul's very public arm twisting is destined to create a serious tension for Philemon. We didn't hear it at the end of this reading, but there are a few more verses at the end of the letter where Paul goes on to say, I know that you will do what I ask, and even more than what I ask. Oh, and by the way, please prepare a guest room, because I hope to visit you as soon as I am released from prison. <laughs> and so this is not a subtle letter. But for a wealthy person of status to forgive a runaway slave would already have meant significant shame, significant loss of face in the patriarchal society of Rome. To free him and then treat him as a brother, that would be unheard of. And that is what Paul says is simply what the gospel demands. Now in today's gospel, Jesus tells us that following him has a cost. It might cost us money or status or possessions, or it might cost us loved ones or even life itself. I wonder if Philemon had a sense of what it might cost him when he decided to follow Jesus. In the eyes of Roman society, it cost him the value of one enslaved worker. But in God's eyes, that is something he never owned in the first place. But it did cost Philemon more than that. It cost him some of his sense of how his world functioned. It cost him some of his sense of who he was. It cost him his self-understanding as someone with status. It cost him, perhaps, the ability to take for granted that the difference between him and Onesimus was just the way the world worked, was an okay thing. It cost him, perhaps, his illusions. 
We don't know how Philemon responded to this letter. There is one little clue, which is that a couple of decades later, there was a bishop of Ephesus named Onesimus. And so some have speculated that Philemon did free Onesimus and that he ended up as bishop. But we don't know. What we do know is that the words of Paul and the words of Jesus speak not just to Philemon in the first century. They speak to every Christian everywhere and every time. What illusions will following Jesus cost us? We all have illusions about our society and our place in it. I remember as a child somehow acquiring the belief that this country, my country, had never started a war and had never lost a war. And I don't know where I picked up that idea, those ideas, or who taught me them. But I do remember the sense of surprise and kind of betrayal I felt as a teenager when I learned that neither of those things was in fact true. And there can be a similar sense of surprise and betrayal for those of us raised on those textbooks or those discourses that gloss over this country's racial history. And especially those of us who can identify in some ways with Philemon. Those of us who were born with some characteristics of skin color or gender or family origin. They gave us some social benefit and who have some vested interest in not thinking too hard about the circumstances that led to that being the case. And so today, for example, for just one example in this country, the average white household has a net worth, has wealth 10 times as high as the average black household. And that gap isn't because the average white household works 10 times as hard as the average black household. But in fact, people who study this from an economic standpoint have traced that gap fairly directly from slavery itself through Jim Crow laws and housing segregation and redlining and other similar practices up through the present day. And so this legacy is still very much with us in tangible, direct ways. That's one part of our story of race. And there's more to it. Of course, there is the removal of indigenous people. There is the Chinese Exclusion Act. There is the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II. There is the treatment of Hispanic Americans and immigrants throughout our history, including detention camps today. And so, in particular, those of us who are white have a responsibility, have a necessity to see and acknowledge and understand the ways that this country has been set up since the very beginning, since before the beginning, since before it was a country in ways that favor European settlers and their descendants. That doesn't always have to stay that way. And if we hear Paul's words and Jesus' words today, then we'll be on the hook to work, to take action, to make sure it doesn't stay that way. History is powerful. But history is not all powerful. And the way things have been is not the way that things have to be. Facing history is the first step toward changing the future. And so if we follow Jesus, no matter who we are, it will cost us something. But it will set us free. <laughs>